cliffcentral.com. African analysis has uh, been with us all year, and we are going to be, I'm very happy to say, starting a brand new season of African analysis next year with JJ Cornish and, of course, the Johannesburg Business School, who, if you haven't seen what they do, you need to go and check them out. Go and look at what the Johannesburg Business School is up to. Go and look at what they do with their MBA graduates. It's absolutely phenomenal. They're also extremely interested in what's happening in the rest of Africa. Why? Because they're a smart business school who realize that Africa is one of the places where they have not yet, where, where markets have not been entirely exploited, where there are huge numbers of consumers, where there is massive opportunity. And the Joburg Business School is at the forefront of discovering these new markets, making sense of them. That's one of the reasons that they bring us African analysis every two weeks. JJ Cornish, of course, is the most informed guy we could find on the continent when it comes to looking at all the important current affairs from all over elections, the economies of various countries, the state of play in, in the continent, Francophone and Anglophone Africa, and so many other things. So we get to spend time with him every two weeks. And today is our last episode of the year. So we welcome, as always, Jean-Jacques Cornish. How are you, sir? Bonjour to you, Gareth. If maybe next year you can fit me in next to some other kind of insert because your last one, the only, <laughs> the only way I have of expressing anything about that is ain't got no class. Oh, <laughs> wow. That's, that's the best because, yeah, I'm sorry that we even had to talk about that before bringing you on. Unbelievable, right? So let's talk, JJ, about... Um, basically about the year in review, because there's quite a lot that's happened in, in current affairs in Africa in the last couple of months. Uh, there's always news. There's news breaking here, there, and everywhere. We've got elections to talk about, as I mentioned just a moment ago. But you've got some things that you want to talk to us about on the last day of African analysis. So where do we begin? Well, you know, I thought, because I know you like lists. I love lists. Uh, and, 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 and because your, 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 your viewers and listeners love lists, and yes. I've got Africa's 10 richest countries. Now, that's something. Excellent. We start the most, the richest country, and by a little way, is Nigeria. Now, I often argue with that because they have Ooh. grown up problems. But it's Nigeria, number one, with a, a GDP of a 477 billion gross domestic product. Wow. South Africa comes in second with 409 billion. Egypt is third with 405. And then it starts falling off. We have Algeria, 228 billion. Morocco, 142 billion. Uh, well, in fact, Angola's ahead of uh, Morocco with uh, 163 billion. And then Morocco. And then uh, Ethiopia, 111.3. Then Kenya. Then Ghana. And then Tanzania. Now, why do I doubt? Nigeria is that you know Nigeria has inflation currently at 25.8%. It has sluggish growth, millions, millions in poverty there, inadequate infrastructure. They've got tariff and trade and non tariff barriers on trade. And the infrastructure is a lack of it in the country. You know, we talk about every time we put up a mall, a Nigerian says to me, We don't even have anything like that in. Uh, Nigeria, you have, uh, you know, two or three per city or more than that per city. There's a lack of confidence in the currency in Nigeria and, um, and a limitation on foreign exchange. So they have these problems. But interestingly, 
at COP28, the biggest con job on the planet, COP it always is. You know, Definitely. they have, they have this meeting. And then what do they do? My goodness, they go over the deadline. They've done it 28 times. They go over the deadline. And then after a day and yeah. a half of stopping the clock, as they like to call it, they suddenly come yeah. up with a quotes breakthrough, a breakthrough. Well, I oh, mean, yeah. I, after the cop in Durban, I said I will never cover another one because it's a con job of the people. But worst of all, it's a con job of the media. And they make me want to tell you there's been a breakthrough when there hasn't been. And there wasn't at this last one either. So, so you know, it's very, very, very sad. But the, there were these countries talking, well, you know, there, were, there was a nuance on, uh, on uh, fossil fuels. But when we have countries like Nigeria, we have countries like Algeria, we have countries like uh, Ghana in, and, uh, that all have fossil fuels in the country. Nigeria put it quite well, saying, if you want to have this fall down in the fossil fuels before we've been able to enrich ourselves properly, it's like putting us on life support but not allowing well, us to breathe, you know. But yes. I mean, anyway. So it, 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 it so there were there, there was this dichotomy. They all, all everybody said we had to. Uh, you can't use the for the phrase phase out. So you had to transition away from. And it was really an exercise in, uh, in, in you know, gymnastics of of of, of uh, word gymnastics, and it was really Wordplay. really awful. Absolute, absolute. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, JJ, I'm so glad that you're saying this stuff because I, for one, am sick to death of seeing these endless summits where world leaders pitch up. They sit and they talk to each other. They stay in five-star hotels. The taxpayers of those countries are forced to cough up. And then we are told how bad we are for driving cars, for running businesses, for using electricity by a bunch of leaders who realize at some level they must realize that they are they're self-conscious frauds, right? So they're aware of the fact that they're lying, that the only way your country develops, the only way that things get better for people in that country, the only way you raise people out of poverty is by having abundant energy, by creating opportunities for business, by allowing people to trade as freely as possible. And yet these guys get together to do exactly the opposite. And then they thumb their noses at us from there. Well, you know, I've got a, one interesting uh, element from this COP, COP28, and they started with this damage fund and said we will pay those countries uh, affected by climate change. Well, Africa, for example, do you know that in terms of carbon emissions, Africa is responsible for 4% of the world's carbon emissions. And if you take That's us, right. the freedom-loving People's Republic of South Africa, out of that, then the contribution by the rest of the continent is virtually negligible but they've decided Correct. that they've got to pay they started on day one agreeing to pay this amount do you know that cop 15 in copenhagen so work it out that's that's 15 years ago they decided yeah. to pay compensation to small countries um, and developing countries affected by climate change we have yet to have that paid we have yet to have them honor that promise from 15 years ago. So COP is such a, such a, a, a con job. It should be called CON 17 and CON 18 and CON 19. It really is shameful. Crooked. The way they, you know, <laughs> crooked. <laughs> really They're frightful. Crooked. 
There's no, there's no other way to put it. Okay, so, so JJ, when these people get together, you've been to some of these summits. You said you've reported on them and you refuse to do it now. Just tell us what kinds of things these leaders get up to. Um, because most of us will never attend a Davos or a COP28 or a, um, a, a G20 summit or any of these various meetings that these people are flown to and are put up at and then sit around and, and basically are mocking everyone else on earth. Well, what do they Davos, do? What do, they, Davos, what do these guys do? They have dinners? What do they do? Well, they have dinners. They have talk shops. You know, they talk and oh. talk and talk. Now, I am an inveterate multilateralist. I believe that multilateral uh, uh, politics is, is the only thing short of war in the so I, I for example support the United Nations and I, I get irritated by people saying well what are the United Nations doing about it the United yeah. Nations is a vast organization and uh, and uh, the, you know you can't say what are they doing about it when you don't know which bodies are in play but it has shown itself to be unfortunately completely toothless of late look what uh, they are doing on Ukraine nothing because of the Mm -hmm. uh, veto. Look at so we say uh, we we need to end the uh, invasion of on the war against Ukraine, and uh, the, everybody says yes, yes, and they all agree. Now the point is, it's non-binding if the General Assembly says or does something. It's non-binding. As it yeah. happens, Gareth, what we were talking about, COP, is non-binding too. You know, everybody says. So are they going to implement what they decided at COP? Everybody laughs. The, 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 those in the know laugh and say, no, this is the United Nations. They'll try and put moral pressure on and so on. But there's nothing. The only binding things that the United Nations does are by the Security Council under Chapter 7. And that is, for example, sanctions that they can apply, but nothing else. And of course, uh, if they don't, if it's not in the in the Security Council, then it has no muscle whatever. Look, look at Israel, when the world saying we've got to have a ceasefire, we've got 20,000 innocent Palestinians killed now in Gaza. There has to be a ceasefire. Then the United States says, well, no, you can't have a ceasefire because that will play into Hamas's hands. So they support their uh, friend in that area, Israel. And uh, so nothing can be done. Of course, the Britain, even worse in their craven way, just abstain. They don't even cast the veto. I, when I was at the United Nations, had three countries, Britain, France, and the United States, the three Western permanent members of the Security Council, repeatedly casting vetoes supporting apartheid South Africa. But that was the time of the Cold War. They were fighting effectively against Russia, you see. And say so if Russia wanted something, they had to oppose that. So it was a, it was a silly game. The only time... The triple veto, the triple protection veto from from the Western powers fell was, um, you know, after the uh, death of Steve Biko and the banning of the uh, uh, World newspaper, and you know, when the when the I, apartheid regime just just went too far, and they brought in uh, sanctions, but not. The sanctions that were called for, they brought in an arms embargo, a mandatory arms embargo. And uh, because they said, you know, they, we can't have South Africa being that dangerous. Well, you, you talk so, about so it the worked UN. There. You talk about the UN and, and the Security Council and the veto powers of the, of the major powers. But, but at least those are major powers. You know, when, 
Russia or China or America or the or the UK, for whatever reason, they're still on that list of major powers. I don't think they are anymore. But anyway, those are the countries that founded the UN that were the, the members of the Security Council from the beginning. At least those countries carry some weight. You know, they have there are military consequences to their decisions. There are economic consequences to their decisions. What I think is so ridiculous about the UN is that the president of Burkina Faso gets up there and starts lecturing the world about what's wrong. And nobody's interested in what Burkina Faso have to say. How does South yeah. Africa line up? How do we square up at the UN? Because for a while, wasn't Pumzile Mlambo Nuka, she was the, the head of the UN's, yeah. uh, what was it? Uh, Human Rights Commission or Department of Women and whatever it was. Uh, was dealing with women's rights. You know, uh, the, what you're talking about there is what Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the US ambassador at the time I was there, used to call the tyranny of the majority. But, yeah. but you've got to remember that whatever Burkina Faso or or, or the, the smaller nations have to say is at the General Assembly. And even when they get the vote at the General Assembly, it doesn't matter because it just has moral weight, but nothing more than that. So, I mean, wasn't uh, like Iran, Iran were in charge of like their women's rights for a little while. I mean, Iran, really. Well, when, when you have the Human Rights Commission, uh, yeah. uh, then, then they had all sorts of people coming on. And they do it by blocks. You know, the Africans decide who will who will represent Africa on these bodies. Now, uh, Af South Africa has done well uh, in the new South Africa, democratic South Africa, three times on the Security Council. But what we learned there is that you can make some friends, but you can certainly make some very serious enemies too. And and so it's 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 a fraught business. But when they want to enlarge the Security Council, uh, then, then clearly countries that have real muscle, like Japan and Germany, should come on. Mm. And when that happens, the Italians kept on uh, a, 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 an ambassador way past retirement because he was very, very, very good at this. And I'm sorry, his name has just escaped me. I was smuggled into the uh, delegates' lounge at one of the... Uh, summits in South Africa to go and interview him. And when I, as I was interviewing him, he was looking at the woman passing more than talking to me. But anyway, his, his point, the point, the point he made very astutely was, if you are going to increase the Security Council by including the losers of the Second World War, i.e. Japan and, uh, and Germany, then you've got to include us too, Italy. So, <laughs> yeah, but, but it's enough. never happened. You know, they wanted South Africa to be on. And of course, who would be on if we came on? South Africa, of course, uh, wouldn't say, yes, we want to. Wouldn't throw its hat in the ring. We want to. They, they would say, well, we need two from Africa. And then suddenly countries like China and uh, Russia, who were prepared to take on one Africa, just lost their appetite for this. So, I mean, you know, we're talking about the... UN Security Council instead of the richest African nations, but perhaps at the end of the year that's not a not a bad thing. But uh, it, it's it's a body that if it didn't exist, well, you know, I think I, I would fear the worst for the for the world. But sometimes the way it behaves, uh, it, it, you, you you wonder what it what it is really worth, and whether it's worth it, the money that countries pay. In fact, not all the countries do pay. That's the point. Yeah, you know, that's another thing. That's don't worth pay their subs. Yeah, but it, you know, here here you have uh, uh, the the multilateral system is severely severely under threat at the moment. 
in our own, in Africa, we have uh, the uh, peacekeepers in the Congo. Well, they just have, they have the elections this week yeah. in, in the Congo. Uh, yeah. uh, they are moving out. The, the force, the political force in uh, Sudan has moved out because the United Nations cannot be where the authorities in that country don't want them to be, and that yeah. the, the military regime in Sudan says, we don't want you here. So the United Nations says, okay, we're not abandoning you, Sudan, but we're getting out. And, uh, yeah. you know, so so I, th this is something I'm, I'm, I'm looking at very much with uh, Willili and Schlapper, who I'm writing the book, uh, sort of talking about Af South African foreign policy, sort of pegged to his quite amazing career. And uh, yeah. he, he's not well at the moment, but that's the one area that we've still got to go through is the uh, damage and the threat to the multilateral system, which I think is the greatest threat to world order and to the future of this world. Uh, perhaps not as great as it as as is climate change, but certainly it you know it, it's nipping at its heels. All right. Well, we'll we'll agree to leave that one alone for the rest of 2023, JJ. But let's go to your list. I think this is uh, this is quite an exciting thing to talk about. So you've already mentioned which countries have the biggest economies. Yes. Um, South Africa used to be at the top of that list. We've been superseded by Nigeria, and I know Egypt is nipping on our heels as well. Um, yes. Why why have we lost prominence? Um, why have we lost market share, so to speak, on the continent? It used to be that South Africa was the gateway. To the rest of Africa, we represented an opportunity for multinational corporations, international business, other governments to make their way into Africa and to access this incredible market. Uh, have have we lost political clout? Is that part of the problem? Have we have we slowed our economy because of things like energy uh, abundance? Have we slowed our economy to the point where we're not taken seriously by uh, major players in the market? What is it that we, we, we've miscalculated and done wrong so that we should end up no longer being the most important market in Africa? Well, you know, uh, the, bear in mind that South Africa once sold electrical power all the way up to Ethiopia. We were the yeah. power, that uh, the, the country that lit up. You know, we lit the streets of a city with electrical power before any other countries in the world. Uh, mm -hmm. And this is the ESCOM and, and uh, the corporations like that. Well, of course, that's gone. We can't even keep the power on in our own country at the moment. The moral weight that a democratic South Africa had has diminished completely. The, we, we're unable to speak to Africa with the authority that we once had or that we briefly had uh, yeah. in the Mandela, Mandela period and to a large extent in the Mbeki period. Uh, yes. And so we've lost that. And, and we go along. We're still considered within Africa as being uh, uh, something. And this area of the gateway, it, it was much abused. But yes, you want to get into sub-Saharan African uh, Africa, then you, you, you probably have to come through uh, 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 South Africa still. But it, it's, 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 it parlors the way the South Africans, uh, the situation has fallen off. Nigeria, of course, the oil has done the job there. And and mm. and it's and it's going to be according to the list I have, it will be the top country for some time to come, despite the problems it is having. Uh, Egypt, of course, nipping at South Africa's heels. Absolutely. I mean, I was one once used to ask, is Egypt really 
an African country because, you know, it's Middle Eastern uh, as yeah. well. It could be part of that. But it is there. And but and they've just had this election with Abdel Fattah al-Sisi winning the election. The announcement was overnight with something like 80% of the 90% of the vote. Well, when you get yeah. figures like that, you worry about the democracy. That, that always sounds very suspicious, mm. right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, beaten only by what uh, Kim Il Sung and, and people like that. But, you know, well, we've got 102% of the vote. <laughs> but no, it's very sad. But uh, they had quite a big turnout 68, 66%. Uh, but they have record inflation, de depreciating currency. Uh, forex uh, crippling a uh, uh, forex uh, cr crunch on foreign exchange and uh you know there there's 67 registered million registered voters uh, uh gave, had very little choice uh abdel fatah sisi's number one uh, opponent left the field some months ago complaining that he'd been intimidated and so on so there were sort of three in line but he won it so that's you know when you you were speaking about your election uh 101 and, and, and that's what I was saying. It's all very well to say, yes, we've had elections every five years, but what has led up to those and what is the result? Uh, you know, you can, you, can, you can fool with elections, and that's, what I, and that's certainly what he's been doing. Uh, he threw out Mohamed Morsi. I was election observer for Mohamed yeah. Morsi's election, and uh, uh, whatever problems you might have had with him, uh, uh, he was fairly elected. And uh, now, now Abdel Fattah al-Sisi's had this... Uh, change a constitutional change uh, after a referendum so he's yeah. got a, his terms have been increased to six years from four years but he's only allowed two of them but the first one and many african leaders have done that doesn't actually count you know that that doesn't count as one of the terms so he's going to he's going to be in power till 2020. uh we have then when we get to other countries like algeria in every case in every case they have real inflation real inflationary pressure and commodity price increases because of the Russian invasion of, of or, or the Russian war against the Ukraine. Well, so, yeah. I'm, I'm going to have to draw this to a close, I'm sad to say, because I know there's so much more that we could talk about, but we do have a whole year of African analysis ahead of us in the new yeah. year. And JJ, I hope you will have a very happy uh, Christmas and New Year, and we will see you in 2024. Well, let me say to everyone, joyeux Joyeux Noël et bonne année, you know, happy Christmas, joyous Christmas and a, and a happy new year. Yeah. Thank you, JJ, and, and all the best to you. We'll see you in 2024. Looking forward to it. Omelette du fromage, JJ. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Bye-bye.